This podcast is supported by Siemens, your partner for industrial-grade AI. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of our Industrial AI podcast. My name is Robert Weber, and it's a pleasure to talk to Peter Sieberg, good morning, Robert. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of you, wherever you are. Peter, good morning. Greetings to Munich. Are you still snowed up in Munich? Yeah, I live close to the train track here, south of Munich, and it's amazing. I was was passing it yesterday. There's like, you know, a half a meter to a meter snow on the track. So uh, you and I are going to be in Ludwigsburg tomorrow. Yes, I hope you get out of the town tomorrow. Yeah. The plan. Normally, I would have just gotten up early as I always do. But uh, in this case, I'll make sure that I'm at least I'm going to try to get there already today on the Monday. Yeah. Yeah. We will be at Mann and Hummel for our AI event in the canteen. And I'm really looking forward because the topic is LLMs and why they don't help us everywhere. And I'm already looking for, forward to the discussions after our presentation because that's the most interesting part because then two uh, representatives from the company come on stage and we will have a discussion. So I'm really looking forward. I'm really looking forward to meet you again, Peter, face-to-face -face last time in this year, I think. Is it the last time? Yeah, maybe. Well, who knows? Who knows what's going to come in? Short notice. <laughs> but looking forward to it as well, yeah. Yeah, but let's start with the news part, Peter, because you have a long main part with falconry. So let's start with the news part. Yeah, well, well, I'll chat quickly about that at the end. Uh, I had, um, I saw Stefan Subulak, co-founder, CEO of Renumix. You know him. They built AI-based assistance for engineering, manufacturing. Uh, he's been at our podcast. Those listeners, it's been a little bit, little while back. He joined us at uh, Arberg AI in the Woods. Is that how we call it? Forest, Peter. Oh, forest. There you go. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Robin Hood or what? Robin Hood in the Woods. No, it's forest. Correct me wherever necessary. And he has built an industrial AI canvas, you know, to share with any of you listeners. Now, based on the philosophy, I'm not sure that you're aware, listeners are aware, just very quickly, original business model canvas has, I think, nine so-called building blocks. They were initially proposed 2005. So what is that? 20 years back, Alexander Osterwalder. And um, so on on this canvas, canvas, you know, big piece of paper or small, you know, PowerPoint, Word, whatever you do. And two of those blocks um, he um, he has passed on. So he, he also looks at value proposition and resources there on there. But then he has, of course, very specific industrial. So he looks at one block as data curation or data sources. And, you know, you, so you can imagine, right? You know, it's not a general business canvas. It's specifically for industrial AI. And and then I started thinking, you know, I've, I've worked with this as well. And yes, I did. So I went back a couple of years. This is, um, I was getting close towards the 10 years, right? Industrial data intelligence. Still a wonderful name that we chose as our startup. And I'm not going to go into the details because I guess it's still, you know, kind of uh, in, internal, maybe copyrighted. But we did look at, at that time, key partners, the cost structure, the revenue streams. You know, it's it's all these wonderful, very important elements that you, as the originator, you need to start thinking about. And maybe you want to write them down. You want to write them down, then do it in a canvas. Uh, and we had, for example, value proposition. I'm going to share those with you. So we had number one, on-site, inside. Think about that. Ten years ago, anomaly, uh, anomalies for OEE improvements in production real time. And we also had plug-and-play edge analytics for OPC UA information models. Ten years back. Wow, Peter. But this is not about no, no, but the idea is. So I did recall that we used the uh, the canvas as well. Yeah. Is it available online? Yeah, right. Yeah, he he just has it uh, online as a link. You can download it. 
And um, uh, I'm sure that uh, Stefan is very uh, happy to help you as well. I mean, he says download the, the canvas to map out the solution and then out of it you can distill this you know, minimum viable product. We talked about that as well yep. uh, with Christian. It's already a couple of years uh, back, I believe, that we did. You can do that you know, uh, in a day or a week or whatever. Uh, and I'm sure, as I, as I said, that Stefan is very happy to help you. Now, my experience is, and that is more from my 10 years uh, Intel, you know, having done so many projects in the business development marketing at a specific moment in time, you know, you cannot sit with colleagues and think about what, what, are, why are we here? Uh, what is the project? Number one, you need to know your target audience. What is the objective, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say for those of you listeners that are at the beginning, maybe this is your first industrial AI project. Maybe it's your second for you yourself to, to have a good feeling and view of what what are all the elements that are important to your project, number one? And then number two, with all the people around you in the project, you know, physically or uh, online, you all are going to need to agree on one sheet of paper uh, before you then start doing something. So from that perspective, I think it's a very nice initiative by Stefan. And Stefan is focused on data-centric approach, right? Exactly, right. That's that's what he does at the same time as well. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess that is his, his uh, main direction, his main um, approach to industrial AI. I go on. Perhaps some of you will remember this. NVIDIA announced a few weeks ago a major expansion of two frameworks on the NVIDIA Jetson platform for Edge AI and Robotics. On one hand, the NVIDIA ISAC ROS robotics framework, and on the other, the NVIDIA Metropolis expansion on Jetson, and they are coming in the next few weeks. And I'm really looking forward because I mentioned this because in, I think next week we will have a robotics company which already uses this technology and presented uh, something on the edge, an NVIDIA Jetson platform next to the robotic, uh, next to the PLC of the robot. Very interesting. And yeah, we will have an episode next week on this topic. Looking forward to, I'm not the specialist, but I do want to share one general uh, thought. I do that every now and then <laughs> privately as well. Now, I, I must say, but because it's very important. I, so as far as my understanding goes, right, and not understanding the details of the Jetson and all the other, although I come here from the microprocessor space and the time that I was there with this company, I imagined Intel, of course, they were at that time also the number one uh, graphics uh, chip provider. Although I read that the co-founder of NVIDIA, uh, he did the first, what is it, PGA graphics. I mean, nobody has ever heard of it. I, I was not going to talk about that. The, I think the main reason I understand that NVIDIA today is representing what? I think I saw something like 90% of the, what is that then? Is that then the uh, machine learning specific uh, high level um, uh, processes is because of their, I think it's called CUDA, right? So whatever the naming is and of what you just said, Jetson, CUDA and all of this is a, is a library. And what I, what I recalled is again going back to my, but it's exactly the same thing. There was this at that time, and we're now talking probably 1980s, something, Seiko, Japanese Seiko, you know, a sister company of the watch company. And they had these huge 20 huge uh, boards of graphics processes. You've never seen something like that. Now, the thing is, and that has not come the number one, but they had a similar thing. So you, you, you would just call a circle on the screen by whatever. You know, they had a library of circle. And if you knew how to address a circle, then you would write uh, through an interpreter a circle. Now, I stop here. The point is, by, I think, maybe now 10 years ago, by deciding that they were going to make 
um, a library for machine learning calls, and that has become number one. So everybody around the world, you're not you're not addressing at a at a low level the the, the graphics processor um, uh, matrix manipulations typically, but at a very high level. And if that is in your system, and I think we had that discussion with a colleague from Nvidia, it's very difficult to get out. Right, you're almost like caught in in a positive sense. Yeah, sure. So, but I think it's very interesting because last episode we we discussed the topic the gray boxes from the from the trade fair show by by Kiba by Siemens by Bosch by by Beckhoff and now we are already talking about Nvidia gray boxes for the robotics. So um, it's very interesting that everybody sells gray boxes. So I, I read an, an interesting article. Should we invest more in hardware in the next few years? Because we in the in the past. We were very focused on software investments. Maybe the future is, again, hardware investments. Yeah, right. And I think these are cycles whenever you look back um, into the past. And when you're young, you can only look back one cycle of 20 years. <laughs> Thank you very much. When you're older, you can look uh, back two or three cycles of whatever. You know, it's a sinus. You know, it's a wave going up and down, whatever, 20, 25 years. You know, and I've I've, I've grown up in the time, you know, around the, 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 the names of the companies I was with. And typically, they would get rid. And, and let's think of our partner, Siemens. You know, it's a great example. Um, they, have, they have gotten rid of so many... Uh, at some point in time, they were doing cell phones. They were doing the chips, which is now Infineon. Then there's this, and all these separate ones. That's the time that I have kind of um, grown into. Intel exactly the same. And now, since a couple of years, you see all of these. We talked about it last time as well. You see Microsoft. You see Google. All these huge big tech companies, uh, Amazon, all producing their own chips. Because maybe, you know, because they have a foresight to look into the future along the lines of what you just said. Or, and then we had COVID, you know, and there was a year or two where the complete global logistics um, and then there's politics as well. You know, where are chips being produced these days? Um, and, and that is a reason, uh, yeah, I would, I think we're in the very middle of that. Now, it's very weird though, at, this, at, at the very same time because chip manuf design and manufacturing is not an easy thing to do, right? So, um, and, and I think we're going to see a continuation of, of this approach for the next five, 10 years. And then, If uh, 10 years later we're going to be doing whatever, number 675 episode of our podcast, <laughs> we'll then talk about, oh, you see, the first ones are getting out again. They, again, they say, you know, Schuster, what is it? Shoemaker, stay with, you know, producing shoes and don't produce chips. Yeah. And I have one more company to add because OpenAI signed also a deal to order for 51 million worth neuromorphic AI chips in advance from a startup called Rain AI. So also OpenAI invests a lot of money in this neuromorphic AI chips. Very interesting. Oh, okay. Okay, so they didn't place an order, but they're investing in a company. Yeah, and, and I have the quote from The Wired. Documents show that OpenAI signed a letter of intent to spend 51 million on brain-inspired chips developed by a startup Rain. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman previously, previously made a personal investment in Rain. Uh, yeah, I will put the whole article in the show notes and everybody can read this. And we already had an episode on the topic of neuromorphic chips in German, episode number, oh, do you know the number? <laughs> no. 155, I think, I hope. Uh, that's probably two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, the complete thing we do is more or less brain inspired. That is the big discussion we see every day, each day, every minute of the day on LinkedIn, I guess on Twitter, everywhere. We're always the one side, more the marketing oriented and don't take it personal, dear marketeers, always making the link to the brain, you know, brain inspired, you know, whatever. Uh, 
our our machine learning uh, nets are more or less or not is what the other what the, the the people who do nothing else but study our brain say you know there is no maybe not more than a one percent um, um, overlap between the two so we need to we need to always be be careful i guess but in the end i'm sure that they're going to be doing something similar to to an nvidia in the end it's always going to be about metrics um, manipulation and and all the libraries which we call those of you that are the programmers the coders and those specific calls i did the example of the circle you know 30 years ago and today you do whatever you know you do a specific algorithm call you know looking for whatever you know, and that call you 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 can give directly to the uh, to the chip but you have already some news peter uh yeah very quickly microsoft ignite i didn't want to just have that pass by i hadn't heard of it but no but if, if you dear listener are somehow on microsoft and who isn't at the same time this is not to be like you know you have to or whatever or you know microsoft is great and perfect or whatever you decide for yourself but i just want to quickly share it so there were a couple of announcements and actually a very good summary was given by colin Maston, if that I pronounce that correctly. He's the director of research at, at ARC. Uh, I'm going to give a couple of bullet points. Central theme, I think, was democratizing AI with co-pilots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but that's, I think, but it's, for me, that is the overall theme. And if I, a little bit later, I didn't know here that they rebranded Bing Chat to Microsoft Copilot. You know, I must say, I believe that, you know, if you then compare and when did you last use, uh, Robert, you know, Chat GPT to Copilot, I think that's why you see that some professionals have worked. I think Copilot is the perfect word. Uh, for you know what it is that we're experiencing, all of us, and it doesn't matter if it's ChatGPT or any of the hundreds, if not thousands, of open source uh, and other LLMs. So when did you last use one of those, Robert? I used ChatGPT on this weekend. Okay. So, but I'm I'm not convinced with this co-pilot. Oh no. Topic. Yes, it's nice, but that Microsoft now builds a product product out of it. It's totally fine for me but what i see or what i hear now there are people from the companies talking to me and talk to me and say oh yeah we have copilot now that's our ai strategy you know oh right <laughs> that's not that's not the deal yeah that's not the idea uh, to 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 order copilot now you have an ai strategy made by microsoft for your company uh, they should go to stefan suvalak's yeah. industrial ai canvas absolutely well, yeah. they can if that's what their value proposition is microsoft copilot and leave the the rest of the canvas empty yeah sure uh, and maybe that that's i think that's what you're saying now but my, my point still is i think the word is very good because uh, I think there was a point that's already a couple of weeks back again where, where I used the word in a conversation and then I really thought of the idea being a pilot and there is a person sitting next to me who is my co-pilot or the, the other way around, doesn't matter. But the idea, and it doesn't matter if that is the pilot in the plane or that is, and I, I believe actually I had the term already used a year or two before. I think it was about... Um, what is it? Radiology. So the radiologist and he or she said exactly the same using, I think it was, it doesn't matter whose technology it was. He said it is like as if I have a colleague sitting next to me. But the goal of the co-pilot in your plane wants to become a pilot on one day. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the topic that, again that we hear um, almost every day, which was the reason behind the the opera, the soap opera two weeks ago. But but it's a continuation of this um, almost opera. Maybe we come to it uh, later. Uh, yeah, but that's of course is not meant to be um, meant to be part of it. Yeah, sure. Uh, then they talk about Microsoft Fabric. Um, it's, a, it's a platform designed to provide a unified data architecture. Then my thought is, what does this mean? For OPC UA, maybe we're going to discuss it in our OPC UA podcast. There's Azure Studio, Copilot Studio. Anyway, so Colin concludes that Microsoft's commitment to providing industrial organizations with the tools 
the need to thrive in the area of AI, quote unquote, which I wasn't that certain. I'm not sure how you felt it the last couple of months because there were a couple of announcements about Microsoft withdrawing, you know, specifically industrial metaverse, yeah, yeah. right? Now, having said that, one of the quotes in relation to the Ignite 2023 was an industrial metaverse showcase. So there you go. Take it for what it is. Those of you that know, that have your opinion. And again, this is not about saying that this is all perfect and good. I just wanted to share it. Uh, you are uh, very, very welcome to have your own opinion. And if, uh, if you say, okay, I need to know it because, you know, my company is on, then um, go and have a look um, for further details. But first, do the industrial AI canvas. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you can. Then I have another article, if I may. There was something about Siemens shared about AI drift uh, being one of the biggest challenges in an AI-powered simulations, uh, specifically where models then extrapolate inaccurately because of the unknown design spaces. And according to uh, Boris Scharanger, uh, he's a senior innovation manager at Siemens Digital Industries. He says it's a nice example of industrial grade in critical simulation runs, which are designed such as the engineers can specify how fast or how precisely to calculate and estimate. So I'm going to be doing an interview with uh, Benam Nuri. Oh, right. Yeah, right. You recall Benam, right. He's the... AI machine learning team lead, uh, knowledge-based engineering, and he's with Siemens Energy. And you know him, you and I know him, because he attended our first AI in the, not cloister, but monastery in Würzburg, right? Yeah, 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 I remember. He's a very smart guy, right? He's the brain of, of simulation and AI at, at Siemens Energy, yeah. With a big gas turbines, or, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I was looking for the term, yeah. At that time, he represented how he is using, has been using, you know, for all all the time, their simulation uh, products. But then they have now added, and as what I just said, their AI, well, I'm not sure they call it co-pilots. We're going to hear what they <laughs> call it. No, as I said, no, I said, they. I haven't heard that. Yeah. But of course, yes. And that's what I'm going to be asking him. That's what I'm, of course, going to be asking him. And I would, but then we'll come back. We'll come back and you, dear listener, will be able to hear it at the beginning of the year. And maybe you, Robert, and I will then discuss it if it's uh, if it's one of these where we do the discussion to understand how they are using this tool. In the end, it doesn't matter how you call it. It's a tool that in this case the engineer can use. But very interesting, as this Boris just said, then still in the end, you know, the engineer decides. Uh, and, and I guess that's always the same anyway. That's why it's a co-pilot. Um, no, I should use the term here. No, but that's it's a tool. You, as the engineer in this case, you uh, are going to use this tool and you make the final decision. Right. Absolutely. On your last news, Peter. Oh, I still have more. Oh, I'm going to be doing another. Um, I just was uh, going to share that with you as well. I'm going to be doing a second interview this week about the twin cat chat. You know, there is another topic on large language models into automation with Fabian and with Yanis from Beckhoff. Uh, and again, you can listen to that uh, returning from your end of year holidays. And we will move on to the main part. And you have conducted an interview with Kevin Clark from Falconry, right? Falconry is being actually acquired by uh, ERP Grand IFS. Ah, Those okay. of you who who are aware, I was actually aware, but I, I put them in my brain in a very specific, I think even financially oriented specific area. So there, uh, so that is then IFS CEO, uh, Darren Roos, he was quoted saying that falconry uh, is unique in the market because its um, technology is agnostic And it also does not require data scientists. So, dear data scientists listening, don't take it personal. Uh, the topic is a very important topic, though. And then I'll finish on this thought, which I hadn't thought before. As we did the Machine Learning Week Europe, that's now two weeks back, right? We already talked about it. Uh, I did a... What is that? A discussion round, open table discussion on exactly this topic. And it was called 
uh, I already uh, forgot how OpenAI had, had called it. But in the meantime, it's called advanced data analysis, right? And the topic was, you know, is it a, <clears throat> is it a opportunity or a threat, right? Because at the conferences, there's like 200 data scientists, mainly number one. So it's, it's not, it's less the, uh, the domain experts. And of course, and the question is for you, dear uh, data scientists, uh, is this a threat? For you and for you, if if they would would be there, um, the main experts, are, are you using this uh, or not? Now th there was not that big interest. You know, people are free to walk around. There's so many things happening all the time. So I, I can't really share in the end. Well, I can share <laughs> that the small group of people who were there and who are data scientists were questioning very very strongly questioning um you know the capabilities almost like a um you know i wasn't sure that they were being honest to themselves maybe they're maybe they're a little bit scared of seeing the capabilities um of what is possible but i want to come back to kevin clark your your interview partner i had a quick look at the website and everything was talking about type series data so it It's a lot about time series in this uh, main part. Yeah, uh, actually, well, that's also because he is, and that's very good, uh, very good call by you. He is a VP time series. Ah, okay. A VP time series. That's an interesting title, right? Yeah, <laughs> VP time series AI. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying it exactly for that reason. That is how important they consider. And, and, and I, I can only confirm that is it exclusively i need to be careful but wherever i have been uh, been involved specifically whatever data you get in industry can i say 100% that's probably not correct um, i mean that depends but if you if you if you talk production it's probably fair to say whatever day you get is, you know, probably 100% time series. You know, we are, our production runs <clears throat> on a millisecond and whatever sensor you have, wherever, whatever it's doing, temperature, um, pressure, <clears throat> whatever is happening is always on the same clock running deterministically as, as time series. So it's, it's an interesting um, perspective. Maybe we don't hear it that much, but whatever data we get as always time series okay peter thank you very much it was a pleasure see you in ludwigsburg at mann und hummel take the train through the snow and uh, take care of you i will certainly do that looking forward to see you and looking forward to talk to you dear listeners again very soon bye 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 my name is peter seberg and my guest today is Kevin Clark, he's the VP Time Series AI at Falconry. And Kevin and I are going to talk about the real-world value and impact of AI in the manufacturing space around operational and predictive data. Hello, Kevin. Good morning, Peter. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. I saw you did a kickoff presentation, is that right, at the RPM Symposium? I did. How was it? I did. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it's a great event. The RPM stands for Reliability Process and, and uh, Maintenance. Okay, yeah. I think we're going to maybe talk about that later. I'm not sure how you see it, but mm -hmm. when we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, you know, applying AI to manufacturing processes, I assume that we're building them typically on top of, or we're doing it for the reason of, use the words, reliability, process, and maintenance. It's not like either or, right? Is that correct? Yeah, and it's impacting them differently. Yeah, and we can talk about that later as well. But okay, yeah, the way AI is growing up, it's impacting maintenance differently, maybe so than it is reliability. Very good. Please introduce yourself to our industrial AI podcast listeners. Will do. So my name is Kevin Clark. I am vice president of AI over at uh, Falconry. I spend a lot of time with customers. I spend a lot of time with our partners. I spend a lot of time with our data scientists within Falconry, uh, trying to establish what's what's best for the market. I come up from being a practitioner, an engineer inside of companies like Caterpillar and Johnson Johnson. At Johnson Johnson, I led globally maintenance excellence, also deploying their uh, EAM systems, Maximo, around the world. And so I've been, I've been doing this for quite some time. Grew up as a mechanically minded engineer, but then rolled into software and analytics and, and advanced technologies as my career progressed. And more recently came on with 
with Falconry out of Fortive, which owns companies like Fluke and Tektronics and Accruant and companies that are household names in the asset management space. So, uh, yeah, then when I came over to, uh, to Falconry, uh, I'd been working with Nakunj, their CEO and founder, for quite some time. And we thought it was time to come over. Two, three interesting things that pick up. You move out out of hardware into software. Aren't we all do? Haven't we all been doing that kind of? Yeah. Aren't we continuously doing that? That doesn't mean that you know, we're still going to need ever better hardware, I guess. And then interestingly, oh, the, the word Tetronics. I think I've been working that's long, long time ago with the company. Actually here, well, not with them. I think there were more competition. Was Tetronics in the market of high-level printers? as well maybe or maybe that's not that you what you know them for yeah that's not what i know them for but but yeah they're tectronics is one of those companies that's been around forever in the labs and you know measuring systems and so it's always kind of interesting to to work around them because their history is so long and so deep so you talk with data scientists with customers with partners not necessarily in that order and we're going to learn from what you learn from them i think that's very important so let's talk a little bit more first about your company falconry or should i say ifs and maybe we do the ifs a bit more in the end so we're first gonna learn about falconry in the next 15 20 minutes yeah so falconry was a startup about 11 or 12 years ago. And I'd gotten to know Nakunj pretty early in to Fortive, the business that owned Fluke and Tektronix and that uh, invested into Falconry. And so I was a point of contact for Nakunj, I would say probably the last eight years or so, working side by side with him and helping him to work through products, work through industries and that, and just playing more of, I'd say, an advisor role. And we spent time on panel sessions together and just talking about the AI industry. And, and really what Nikunj was trying to create at Falconry was was something different. AI is, is a deep analysis solution from Falconry's perspective. But what he wanted to do was to create a, an AI that everybody could use inside of the industrial space. And that's not easy because what the data scientists do with data is nothing short of, of amazing at times. And so to hand that kind of data and analysis over to just anybody that, that really doesn't have that focus was difficult. So he, he took on a big challenge. He built the company out with that in mind, focusing on the solution more than he actually did focusing on making sales. And while it was tough then, I think it's really paid dividends today in what we have as a product. It must have been quite a visionary then. I mean, that's kind of, and we're probably going to talk about that later as well. We talk about large language models, chat, GPT, etc., all the other ones. I mean, that's kind of what they are trying to do these days as well, right? So, I mean, making, you know, exactly the capabilities of what until lately has been exclusively available for the data scientists, available to everybody. So I'm looking forward to learning about that a bit more later. What then is, would you say, is that the, or is it another one, a USP? What what makes then Falkyrie in the specific business different from if there is any competition? I mean, we're almost to the point now, Peter, we've watched so many competitors drop out of the industrial space. And it's not an easy place to be. Industrial is large. And really focusing in on what you're trying to accomplish as a product company matters. And you can't tackle from an AI perspective, just because it's so large and can do so many things and has so many capabilities, it becomes a daunting task to try and be everything to industrial. And so you really have to pick your battles, pick your industries, pick the things that you're trying to provide as value. And I think that's where Falconry has been successful is they picked a couple of key markets, one being the metals industry and two being the Department of Defense and the things that we're doing over there. And they stayed really focused. Now, that wasn't true to begin with. They were trying to tackle every industry and try to be something to everyone because we were really just focused in on assets and the process. And so it just made sense. We should be able to go from industry to industry, no problem. But what Nakunj found out was each industry had its own uniqueness and an AI that is not just a minor thing, that's a massive thing. And understanding their industry, understanding the types of things that they're looking for in that industry with AI required focus. And so they've done a good job of really narrowing in to, to focus in on what matters to those industries. 
And then we can slowly move into other industries as we gain expertise. It's a typical theme, I would say. Maybe you could call it an issue if you apply data scientists from external, you know, that you, depending on, you know, what their experience is, if they have been trained as data scientists, that maybe they then first need to understand the market that they're working for. And I may then assume, as you say, if you concentrate on a, on a handful, or maybe two metals, the fans, maybe there's two, three other ones I see, that you have people that, that come or that are internal data scientists and that have the knowledge of that market. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing that we're finding, so metals is a place that we, we did extremely well. It's continuous data. It makes sense. And they were in need of, of this type of assistance. So metals has been a, a tremendous market for us. But what it's similar to is other businesses inside of like energy, oil and gas, utilities, things of that sort that also have continuous data, that also have similar features that you have inside of metal. So the transition kind of makes sense. And we have other markets popping up, but you know they may or may not make sense. Discrete manufacturing be presents its own challenges when it comes to AI. So that's one that we're, we're starting to work on and, and finding ways that we can penetrate those markets. But it's been a very pragmatic approach to industries. Yeah, I've said it a couple of times. Listeners will have heard it that, you know, in a former life, I was a market segment manager, I believe we called myself and my colleague. And I was doing the discrete and the colleague was doing process, which I believe most of what you do, I think we would have called a process. Uh, very good. So what would be then typical use cases in exactly those industries that you just uh, mentioned? If you don't mind, I'll dip into the products a little bit too. Please I don't do. know if you're going to ask questions about that later, but the products kind of help define the use cases themselves. We have what we call our uh, Falconer patterns and, and patterns includes our, our workbench and clue products, more focused on pattern recognition and building models. Then you have our Falconry Insights, which is focused more on anomaly detection. And so we have use cases that include all products. We have use cases that are just patterns. We have use cases that are just insights or anomaly detection, but our use cases are usually focused in on the asset and the processes that surround those assets. And if you're talking about insights, you're talking about learning what's normal inside of that operational data. And once you understand what's normal, then you can start identifying what's abnormal, what doesn't fit. So that's really the focus there. And I think that the key thing that's really helping us to get right to the folks on the floor, on the plant floor, is turning that mass amount of data, thousands and up to billions of signals coming into falconry, turning it into something contextual, something that's understandable at all the different levels, the analysis level, then all the way to the, to the point of where the action needs to happen. And so that most use cases are very similar, but they just different types of data different types of operations, different types of actions required, and so on and so forth. But that's typically what we would go after in that operational data. Now, you mentioned a couple of uh, products there. Does that mean that you exclusively, that would be in a positive sense, sell kind of off-the-shelf products? Or would you build, would you change them? Would you, you know, start projects for your customers? Or, or is it a combination of both? The answer is yes. Yeah, we have, a, we have products and that's where we start. That's our foundation. But every single day we're working on something more specific for a particular customer. Like right now we're working on something for one customer that will apply to everyone. So we're super excited about it. That, you know, this customer challenges with it. And so we're going out and we're building that. And we know maybe in six months or so, that's going to become a key part of all of our products. So, yeah, you know, AI right now, I, I've said it a hundred times, you know, it was new yesterday, it's new today, and then it will be new tomorrow. There is no... <laughs> end goal for AI. Uh -huh. Yeah, but nevertheless, interesting that you are at that level. You know, if I go back just a couple of episodes, maybe a couple of months, I mean, you, you will hear other uh, companies that have chosen very specifically to to concentrate almost ex exclusively on building uh, solutions. And I don't say one is better than the other one. I think it's more like, a, what should I say, part of the development cycle. Typically, any new market at the entrance can only be building things. And then at some point in time, a couple of years later, you're going to find out that certain approaches make sense to package them and to sell them. So, And if that's what you say, 
you're doing it, maybe not exclusively, but but it's one thing, maybe you're targeting that. I think that's part of the showing the development of where AI, as you say, it was new, is going to be new in the future as well, but where you are already with selling also products to your customers. Yeah, I'll make one comment to that. There's a distinct difference, at least today, a distinct difference between hands-on and hands-off AI. And we've got a lot of AI that's being built in the background that nobody ever sees. You know, just like on the internet, there's a ton of AI, but nobody sees it. We've got a lot of that going on. And and Falconry has both, but we're really focused on from a maintenance and reliability operations standpoint, focused on that hands-on interacting with the, with both man and machine. Very good. You mentioned you almost warned that if I was going to talk about the topic and going to ask you about Cloud Edge, we could talk for hours. We're not going to do that. Nevertheless, I'm just asking, are your products then available on the cloud, on the edge, in a combination, you know, whatever the customer wants, or do you have a specific approach that you're following there? Yeah, the answer is yes. Available in all different ways. Of course, we have defense contracts, so those defense contracts require our product to be on site. Oh, yeah. Very good. And so, you know, we, we offer all the way from that up far into CloudNet. Yeah. I mean, as you are aware, I'm based in the Munich area in Germany as a Dutch guy. It doesn't matter. But the comparison I'm going to make is like we've seen from the beginning, you know, when I was in the middle as a program manager doing this, and that's getting close to it's 10 years ago. From the beginning, you know, let's say machine builders or production companies have always said, and the quote, crown jewels is a quote that I have from Intel, where I spend time. But nevertheless, they were saying as much as, you know, my crown jewels do not go into the cloud. And of course, we see huge positive change. But the question is more like, I feel like maybe maybe we, we talk about international later on, but I don't know if you have a preliminary view on, you know, is that a typical maybe German-European thing? And you say where you're working uh, for defense, of course, that's also very typical. Do you see like typical, you know, differences there on a global market? Yes. I mean, we, we do see the differences. We'd see particular areas moving faster, particular industries moving faster. We see some that are cloud averse, some that are cloud centric, like everything we do is on the cloud. It's kind of hard these days to break it apart as to which one's cloud, which one's not as far as regions, because it gets into so many more things as to why or why not. But I would say, I don't know, I've even been challenged in the U.S. I was going to say U.S. would probably be more inclined to cloud, but we've, we've seen some challenges there too. And you would even think that sometimes in Europe, because of some of the regulations there, that they'd be a bit slow to it. But super fast. That's, that's probably our fastest growing market is Europe. It's, that's a difficult one to answer just because there's so many variables that complicate that assessment. That's okay. Thank you very much. Let's move into our main theme. So what is the, the, the real world value impact of AI in manufacturing and then specifically around operational predictive data? Yeah. So, okay, I'm going to start with operational predictive data. That's near and dear to me. I, I came out of the, the maintenance space. The one thing I didn't talk about before I had gone to college and gotten educated. I spent 10 years prior to college turning wrenches in maintenance. And so I'm a maintenance true blood. Hands-on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hands-on. All right. So I understand the space. And then I went to college and began to learn more about technology and taking it to the next level. And nobody no means had anticipated ended up in AI. But you know, when, when you think about the, the impact here, operational data is that data that is, is part of my process. So if you know anything about SCADA, MES, and things of that sort, that's typically your operational data, plus other things. There's so many other things that come into play when it comes to operational data. But what we're seeing is companies are so willing to give their operational data to AI, more so than ever was in any other industry that I was in. Trying to get a hold of that operational data was really, really difficult. But in AI, companies are pretty willing to just say, yeah, tell me tell me what's going on in my operation. That's interesting. To me, it's it's really interesting that I can see all the things that are going on in an operation. Take, for example, a, a metals industry and uh, a hot mill line, and I have all the operational data real time. And so I know exactly what's going on with that line all the way from one end to the other. But what's interesting, what we did to ourselves in over time is predictive data was... Sh- shuffled over into another area, not together with operational data. And so I can, from operational data, I can identify anomaly after anomaly after anomaly of things that are potentially going to happen in that system 
without predictive data. Now, what I need, though, with that operational data is that predictive data that's sitting over in another database someplace, maybe multiple databases. That's one of the things we've done to ourselves, too, is is that predictive data is not as consolidated as operational data. And so, and just just to help clarify, predictive data, at least to me, and this is not always 100% true, is typically your things that are the outside of the asset process. So if I want to monitor a an electric motor and I want to put extra sensors on it, I could put vibration analysis on it. I could put temperature. I can do amperage. I can do all kinds of different things. That's typically your predictive data. And that's usually going to some other cloud or some other data play, database someplace and not as accessible as what your operational data is. So when you bring all of that together, what it's doing in a time series, from a time series standpoint, is this telling me what's going on? So if I see that the vibration has changed, and I don't know why, it might line up with some anomaly that's starting to show inside of your operational data. That's when the value, that's when the context and the understanding of your process really starts to kick in. And you really start to understand how the exterior or the outside the normal process data is starting to line up with the process data of your line. And that's when you see that moment where people, the first time they see that, they're like, I told you so, I told mm-hmm. you so. <laughs> and and it's the coolest thing. And sometimes there's the opposite happens is like, oh, okay, I didn't realize that. You know, they, they had some preconceived notion for, let's say, years, maybe even decades of, of why a particular asset was failing. But AI kind of exposes, no, this is what's really happening. You're kind of right, but not really. And so I love the connection between your gut feeling and what AI is beginning to tell you. It's just cool to watch. Your your differentiation of the the SCADA MES is for me like thinking back. And of course, it's out in the field between exactly what we would call process. You know, whatever is process, there's always SCADA. And in discrete, there will be typically an MES. What is relatively new to me is your differentiation exactly between the operation and the predictive. So maybe you want to give me, or stay with the example, I believe you said, uh, so we have been having operational data for, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years, I guess, until we still have them, right? And then to stay with your example of the, now I want to, you know, start measuring the vibration. I put a sensor that started, whatever, maybe five years ago, right? I don't know. And so you are suggesting that though, was a different team of people maybe and uh, where, where did and i don't know where did the it department rather than the operational department and that's why they had their own database and they were working separately from the operational data people or yeah and what's crazy about that peter is they may report all up to the same person but there is a, there is a separation out there and it's it's not going to be every single organization of course i don't want to i don't want to keyhole everybody into that same assumption but often very very often not just rarely but often i run into an organization and i i'm with customers constantly i run into an organization that just before i start this i'll tell you two weeks ago i met somebody that was a reliability leader in a plant we're working with an operations manager in that same plant so you got head of reliability you got the head of operations and guess what they didn't know each other (laughs) <laughs> yeah same plan yeah, yeah. if my if my left hand would know what my right hand has done right hand. right yeah that happens typically in bigger organizations right sorry yeah it was crazy but anyway the challenge that we we see with organizations is that they have separated it and part of it is because over the years we've struggled to get reliability kind of data into a manufacturing network That was very IT business driven. All it was is for managing their process. So bringing in extra data that maintenance and reliability and maybe manufacturing engineers wanted to understand the health of an asset was treated differently. And what that's done over the years is just created this issue where our reliability and data is one place and our operational data is someplace else. And so nobody really planned for it to happen. It was kind of a, you know, a necessary evil. And, but here we are today. I got two places to go get really valuable data. Right. And does that mean that they need to be brought together to one place or 
Is it good enough to realize that you need to have both operational and predictive data at least brought together at, at some point in time? It doesn't have to be physically. That's my question. Are you happy with saying, okay, well, as long as I feed a specific time series algorithm with A and with B, then the algorithm can, you know, find, let's say, the anomalies as an example. Doesn't matter that maybe they are in separate databases. I'm fine either way. I think we've come to the realization that Falcon we are the connection for them. Okay. We can bring reliability data together with operational data. And if we have two connections, that's fine. If we have one, that's awesome. But we're perfectly happy connecting to multiple data sources. But what we really, really want is both operational and reliability data because it's just so more so much more meaningful. Okay, having talked about the data, which is the basis for you know any uh, maintenance, any being able to do any artificial intelligence, uh, so to say, what is then the typical real-world value that you are uh, going for? Is it at least, I assume, you know, the uh, OEE, overall uh, equipment efficiency, as what we're talking about? Is that, a, is that a typical thing that you're looking, that your customers are looking at to increase? And or have you seen, you know, potential to go even beyond? I guess it's asking about what is the status of what it is that your customers are asking you to help them with. Yeah. First and foremost, just just to understand the anomalies inside of their operations. I mean, if that's if you had a most basic reason to bring a falconry in, they need to understand their operation and the data that they're they're creating. <clears throat> and this this one can take you really deep because I'm a, I'm a fan of OEE, but I'm also the one that said over the last couple of decades when it came out, I said it's just a number. It is just a number, right? So if we're 75% OEE today and we're 75% OEE tomorrow, they could mean totally different things, but it's still just a number. The only way you understand what that 75% means in OEE, you have to dig in. You have to go check quality. You have to go check productivity. You have to go check availability. You have to go Dig in because 175% could mean a 180 of what the next 75% means. So anyway, I say that because it's the same in AI. We need to understand it. We, we can't just wait for that big anomaly to show up. That's going to save me a million dollars. So I'm going to go after that anomaly when the other 30 anomalies that you've ignored were telling you, telling you something different or telling you that... You need to be aware that there's something going on in your system, right? So anomalies are important, even if we categorize them as a false positive, because you saw the anomaly, but nothing happened. That's a misconception. That is a that is a dangerous assumption. So when you think about OEE, what we're grabbing from operational data impacts every single one of those measures, productivity, quality, and availability. That'd be good. So real quick, the challenge is most organizations haven't got to the point of utilizing AI at the OEE level and measuring that impact, even though it impacts all three. Most of it is the value is understanding what's in there, analyzing that, the, that data to the point of action. What am I going to go do because of this anomaly? Interesting. You mentioned a number 75. I guess that's a very good, maybe representative number. Always depends on the industry, of course. Mm -hmm. I think that's a number typical in, whereas I know it from more of a the discrete market. Uh, at that time, I, I believe that process was, was at a lower, but I'm not going to give that a value. I'm not going to say that one is better than the other because of specifically what it is that you say. It's a relative percentage of a theory theoretical number. What is my theoretical? And I'm going to compare it very quickly with a car manufacturer here out of Bavaria, uh, have also huge production capabilities in the United States, I believe. And I do recall when I was there it's a couple of years ago, I think they had, they told us they had reached, I think it was a number of not, not just 90, I think it was 99%. And people really didn't understand what that meant. So I, I think what we suggested at that time was, well, okay, talk to your manager and, you know, he or she should give you a higher goal and then your OE comes down, you know, very quickly towards the 1980. So interesting that you say that. I think you want to be able to compare yourself. And if it's within an organization, 
whatever, as long as you stick to calculating it the same way and you go down from X to X, or you go up, sorry, from X to X plus 10%, which means more cars out of your production line, less standstill, etc. I think that's still a useful thing to do. Let's move to the elephant in the room, kind of we mentioned it before. So in how far has the introduction then of ChatGPT, that's almost a year ago now, I can't uh, imagine, and all the other language models, the capabilities you mentioned at the very beginning, your colleague, I believe, visionary, providing capabilities that until then had only been available to data scientists, uh, make them available to people on, I don't know, maybe on the shop floor. So where where do you see where you have been maybe as a company in a certain direction and now there is more like a general, not yet like a solution, but the approach of the large language models typically is also the democratization of you know what until then only the data scientists have been able to do. Yeah, I love it that you brought ChatGPT up because it's um, ChatGPT did a lot of things, both positive and negative. The positive, since I'm a marketing sensitive kind of guy, the positive is it exposed AI to a market that really wasn't exposed to it before. Even though AI has been around, we've all been using AI. I don't care if it's Amazon or if it's Google or whatever. We've all been exposed to it for a very long time. You just you just don't know it. ChatGPT made it so that everybody knows it. And people that never would have dealt with AI directly before downloaded ChatGPT and playing with it. You know, of course, students were writing papers with it. And I mean, all kinds of crazy different things. But here's a little bit of the, oh, I don't know if I'd call it negative, but the positive was, was that ChatGPT just totally exposed it. And people were all of a sudden super excited about AI, but then also super scared of AI. And so it was like this play on emotions. But ChatGPT was impactful. The challenge that we have today, though, as a falconry, and I'm sure other AI companies deal with this in some regard too, but the challenge that we have today is shrinking those expectations, right? So ChatGPT makes it so that people can ask ChatGPT anything, and it'll come back with an answer. Of course, they have no idea if it's right or wrong, because they don't know where the data came from. They don't know what chat PGT biases are. They really don't understand any of that. They just know that they asked the question and then something interesting came back. Wow, I never knew that. That's really cool. So they're finding a whole bunch of things that ChatGPT can do. The, the challenge that we have is as we go to customers, and now we have this new challenge of in their mind is, I can just ask Falconry anything and it'll tell me exactly what my equipment is doing. Well, not exactly. So the, the big difference is, is you don't know where the data comes from in ChatGPT, but in Falconry, you know exactly where that data comes from. It's your data. And so if it gives you a, an answer that's either incorrect or uh, misleading or confusing, you only have one person, one company to blame, and that's yourself. So it's a totally different perspective. It's 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 not just the fact that I can get interesting assessments out of my process out of my assets it's now was it very good and if it wasn't very good they now have the power to go fix it so that it is better and improving but you almost have to you almost have to lower the expectations which i hate doing but you have to get it in the right context of what falconry ai does for you and your company versus what chap gpt does in a crazy massive wrong or right data perspective right the topic is hot you know where it is very very important for you um, for us whatever discussions we have in an industrial environment uh, on one hand and the same with any of the you know tens of thousands are there so many large language models in the meantime that's how it feels so the topic is always the same if i want to use in a different department maybe as a company not the, the person in maintenance operations that you talk to but any other person in your own company or in a customer's company somebody wants to introduce it's the topic also of you know am i going to introduce this open ai microsoft whatever it is and am i going to you know, fine-tune it, um, provide it with my data, and then the topic of cloud and edge. We're not going to talk about that again, but that's very, very important on one hand. 
And on the other hand, so, so have you then already been using, can you say a similar approach as this one to saying, yeah, sure, you know, whatever our applications you just mentioned them are, they need to be fed with the uh, company data such that then users, not just data scientists, or maybe I'm going to ask you specifically people, I don't know, on the shop floor, they can ask specific things about the shop floor and then they can get an answer. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of questions inside of that. Here's where yeah, I'm going to go with. I typically do that. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's where I'll go with that. Falconry is designed specifically for assets and processes and, and identifying those patterns and the anomalies that, that uh, occur regularly. So right now our focus is that middle ground of, of providing the patterns and identifying those patterns, identifying those anomalies so that it gets it into a, into a place and a context that can be understood and, and analyzed further. We are working on a whole bunch of things on the backside. And this is one thing I love to talk about, Peter, is internally every single week, we have a thing called Tech Talk. And that allows all of our data scientists, our product developers, um, our engineers to talk about the things they're working on this week. And this is what's always amazing about Tech Talk is there is something, and that's this defends my, it was new yesterday, it's new today, and it'll be new tomorrow. This defends it because every Tech Talk, every single week, we have something new, like brand new, like probably never done before new. And it's the coolest thing to listen to them talk about AI in a way that that may never get out to the general public because it's AI behind the scenes and all the, the cool cool things that are happening. The other thing that we do is called a hackathon. And I know lots of companies do them, but we do them internally and, and challenge them. And then, of course, there's incentives behind that. But these hackathons, just amazing. I, ca I can't tell you how many parts of our product were created because of those hackathons internally. Um, we're even thinking about maybe opening it up to be external so we can get maybe some of our customers involved and other things like that. But it's just the power of what's going on behind the scenes is amazing. In the near future, like I'm talking six months, maybe 12 months, I don't believe we'll have the capability yet where a technician can go in and ask Falconry a particular question, but that's coming. Same with graphics and videos and everything else inside of a Falconry, inside of a, the context of of industrial. And so all of those things are on the table, but I don't think you'll see the ability to ask a question just yet. Thank you very much. Tell us a little bit more about Falconry, a global organization. You talked about Europe, but not that's not the only thing, just in a global market. Where are you? I think we've heard where you're based, your company. You talked about data scientists. Maybe you're looking for uh, people to join you. And if so, what kind of capabilities should they bring? Sure. Yeah. So Falconry is all over the world. We're in Europe. We're in all of the Americas, North, Central, and South. We're also in APAC. That's the area we haven't grown as fast, but we are moving in that direction. As far as what to bring to this company, I still think we're we're not necessarily looking for AI engineers. We're looking for people that understand the industries, people that understand the movement of the industries and the fast pace of the industries and have a broad perspective of what's going on along with those technical skills to code. And that's a misconception of companies like Falconry. Not everybody's a coder in the company, but most everybody in the company is either focused on industries or focused on technical. I can say that most everybody in the company, we just had this conversation internally this past week, was all the way through marketing. Most of our people are technical. And um, it's just a, it's a it's a technical space right now. It's going to get more and more like other industries where you'll have you'll start having more industry expertise and that. But we are pretty heavily loaded on the technical side and rightfully so, I think, as we talked about before, it's new, it's new, it's new. Um, so we've got a lot of development to do. But that's what I would encourage folks if they've got that that broad spectrum advanced advanced technologies kind of view of the world, they'd be a, definitely a good fit at Falcon. Coming to a close, what what you say is the status then of AI in manufacturing in different parts of the world? You just mentioned for you as a company, APAC, United States, China, Europe, and and how do you see that's going to change over the next you know five ten years? Yeah, like I said, it's difficult with the countries. It's even difficult with the industries identifying which ones. If you're regulated industries, I think AI is going to be super interesting because one thing about AI is it it really helps regulated companies understand how compliant they are or areas that they 
need to watch for that are either out of compliance or moving towards out of compliance. And so I, I think your regulated industries are very interested in AI for some of those reasons. And the regulated industries tend to need equipment that is highly monitored. And so that would be my top end of of companies and, and maybe regions, depending on the types of regulations that they, they deal with, that will move rapidly into AI. And that's often, Peter, that's often the harder area to, to deploy AI because it is regulated and because they have certain expectations. So if you can conquer the regulated industries, the rest of them aren't so hard. And now it just gets into that, what I talked about earlier about that expertise in each of the industries to know what, what are the value points? Um, what are the reasons that they would need AI? What are the, you know, what are the types of things that we're actually focused in on to, from a pattern and anomaly standpoint? But the status of artificial intelligence and manufacturing, I mean, that's, you know, manufacturing is changing super fast on us way back in the eighties. And I was alive then, well alive. You would talked a lot about lights out manufacturing. We just technologically, we weren't capable of doing it culturally, organizationally. We just weren't able to do it. We weren't able to pull it off. Right. We had some automation that was being built. And I spent more time, I think, taking automation apart in the nineties and early two thousands that we tried to go to lights out manufacturing and we had to go something more practical. But I think today, I think the technology is so far outpacing us and what we can do. We can't keep up with the technology, you make an investment in technology, three years later, there's something double, doubling what you just <laughs> bought three years before. You haven't even got a return on investment on it yet. Three months later. Yeah. <laughs> so the technology is so outpacing manufacturing that that's, that's a challenging thing. Even if you were to build a brand new plant today, five years from now, you'd be questioning whether I've got the best or not. And I, I don't want to point certain companies out, but I think take, for example, the, the company that, that is massively building facilities. I think Amazon struggles with that. They build brand new facilities, top of the line, advanced manufacturing or advanced packaging and shipping technology. And five years later, those brand new plants are, are challenged on whether they've really got the best technology or not. And I think that's where, where we are from a world perspective is how in the world do I keep up with that technology? In the next five to 10 years, I go back to the same statement, it was new yesterday, it'll be new today, it'll be new tomorrow. It is hard to see an end game for AI. Everything else I can, if you're talking about EAM systems, you're talking about ERP systems and all of that, I can talk about end game for them. But it's difficult in the AI space to say, where are we heading and where are we going to end up? Because I don't think today we have an end up kind of place for AI. I think it's just that massive and that unknown of what, what we can actually accomplish with it. But I think in the next five years, I would think we would be hard pressed to say that any organization is going to go without AI in the next five years. It's going to build such a distinct competitive advantage to have deployed AI that there's some industries out there that it'll be a complete transformation just because the competitiveness of few over the others in the industry is going to be that distinct. And I think that's that's potentially in the next five years. Very good. Just as you mentioned, final question, you mentioned ERP and light got up in my brain and said, oh, IFS, we didn't talk maybe two, three sentences on the acquisition by IFS, which is, is that correct? Is an ERP company or maybe there's a couple of other yeah. terms that do relate to IFS as well, right? Yeah. If you ask today, if you ask IFS, I think they would really say they're an asset company and people are assets obviously too. So assets and the processes and all of those things that surround it. But, you know, they, last year they bought a company called Ultimo. Um, they bought P2, which is SCADA systems. Uh, they bought Polka, which is work technology. So yes, they're an ERP company that is really digging deep into process and assets. And of course they had their own EAM inside of their ERP. So yeah, I think the alignment Peter is is really really strong for a falconry to come into an IFS and then take that technology and move it into all of their all of their applications. I think it's I think it's going to be game changing for the industry to have an ERP EAM uh, field service management company powered by asset and process AI. I, I think that's going to be super powerful and very competitive in the world market. 
Kevin, thank you very much. As a closer of AI, also in manufacturing, was new yesterday, is new today, and is going to be new tomorrow. That's what we're, at least that slogan is what we're going to take <laughs> away from this, at least, and all the other things. Thank you very much. Uh, listeners that want to maybe get in touch with you, they can best do that through LinkedIn is what you suggested, Kevin Clark, K-E-V-I-N-C-L-A-R-K. And otherwise, if you, the listener, have any question, comment, as always, please send me an email to peter at aipod.de. Very happy that you stayed with us so far. Looking forward to have you with us again. Kevin, thank you very much uh, for your time and have a nice day. Thank you, Peter. You as well.